Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the no BS marketing podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. Since we're talking about marketing, marketing strategy, eliminate as many assumptions as you can and always really dig into the truth. Try to be objective about what are we actually trying to accomplish here? What do I care about? What is really important at the end of the day? It's really easy to get sucked into uh, vanity metrics and feeling like, well, everything's going fine on paper. And as long as you know the, the boss is happy with me, then things are going fine. It takes a lot of intellectual honesty and kind of humility to always be searching after the truth and be thinking from first principles. But that's where a lot of the innovation happens. That's where a lot of the creativity happens. That's where you learn to become a more kind of independent thinker. What's up, Corey? Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I'm super excited to chat with you. Been following you for a long time. We've exchanged conversations on Twitter and other places, but never met face to face, I guess, virtually face to face. So great to finally meet you. Yeah, absolutely. I know I always love uh, putting an actual face to the avatar (laughs) and getting to see how someone speaks and acts and get their personality. So it's awesome. I love it. I want to kick off with how did you start getting into marketing? What was your experience? Yeah, definitely. So uh, when I was 19, I kind of figured out that I wanted to be an entrepreneur eventually. I just didn't know what that looked like or when or how or what kind of business. And, you know, when you're 19, I was just in college. I was had no idea sort of how the world worked, really. It's just still very green. But I kind of knew that about myself as well. And so I knew that I wanted to get into something that would help lead into starting a business. So at first, I thought that that would be accounting and finance. And so I started on the path of getting an accounting degree. And I went to a community college. And uh, by that time, I was like reading all these books and listening to podcasts and really like diving into the stories of entrepreneurs and how to start a business and what really kind of makes a tick. And at that time, especially, I was really into this whole kind of growing D2C movement and um, direct-to-consumer brands and products and kind of the whole like physical hardware goods space. And then I actually got an opportunity. I was going to go to SDSU here in San Diego, and I got an opportunity to go to uh, a private Christian college on a full scholarship. And so I took that. But then only after transferring, learned that they didn't have an accounting or finance degree. <laughs> and so, so then my only two options were global business, which I don't speak any of the other languages, and marketing. So I chose marketing. And once I got into marketing, I realized, oh, this is actually like really close to all the things I've been learning about anyways. I just didn't really realize that that was what it was. I didn't really know what marketing was before that. It was kind of just like this idea of, you know, branding and advertising. I didn't know really the whole world of like content and what marketing looks like for different types of businesses and how it's much more than just, you know, running ads and having a nice logo or tagline. And um, so then anyways, long story short, I wanted to get engaged to my then girlfriend, now wife. The stipulation was that I had to have a job lined up. I hit Google and said, what are the best places to work in San Diego? Just went down the line of all the different companies that were listed there. And one of them was a startup here in San Diego called Cordial, who had an opening for a junior marketing intern position. And so I applied that same day in class while I was looking, got an interview a couple days later and was hired on the spot. And that was my 
entry and foray into marketing, but also SaaS marketing, which turns out I really like, and I'm glad I landed in that spot in particular. Yeah, I, your path is kind of similar to mine. I knew I wanted to be do something with entrepreneurship, but I didn't know it was marketing that I actually liked in entrepreneurship. I just saw my mom do it, so it, mm. I, I love that path. And then I did an entrepreneurship degree and figured out that I don't like accounting and finance. I actually like mm-hmm. the parties. So, uh, <laughs> one thing you're really great at is getting the most out of a, a tight marketing budget. So how do you think about delivering marketing on a smaller budget? That's question one. And the question two would be like, how do you think about delivering it in a smaller budget than your competitor's budget in the market? Yeah, so the funny part is that, you know, I landed in this world of SaaS marketing and I started at a, a VC-backed startup, which was cordial. We had, you know, money everywhere and it was just like unlimited budget, basically. And there was no question. It was just sort of like a race. And then I was the head of growth at Metrics, which was like a mostly bootstrapped company, very, very small amount of funding. And they sort of like burned through most of it and were kind of to the stage where they didn't have just like a huge treasure trove of cash to pull from. So I had to go back to kind of this like scrappy, how do I make the most out of a, a shoestring budget kind of mindset and and get back to that. And it's really hard. I don't know why I kind of chose this, but I actually really enjoy it. I love the kind of zero to one stage of SaaS companies and helping them get their initial traction. I especially have a soft a soft spot in my heart for like indie hackers and bootstrappers and developer founders who are just kind of making it work nights and weekends and literally don't have a budget whatsoever. They're just kind of self-funding everything themselves. And so I had to learn it really the hard way and kind of through necessity because a lot of startups I was working with or helping or uh, that my friends were starting were not VC backed. And especially when you're going up you know, the giant incumbents in the space that are maybe like these publicly traded SaaS companies, or we have competitors who are raising tons and tons of capital, you have to, you have to be super, super efficient. And uh, it's really just a forcing function because it's kind of like a make it work or die kind of scenario where like if you don't have cash and you have to do something to get initial traction. So what do you do? Um, So anyways, long story short, I found that there's a couple of starting points that really help with working on a shoestring budget, especially when you're kind of going up up against one of the big guys. One of them is really, I call it marketing jujitsu, and it's kind of using the leverage of a big incumbent against them. And so, for example, uh, I'm kind of like the part-time head of marketing for Savvy Cal, and been with Derek Reimer, who's the founder there, since basically at the very beginning, we were at like $400 in MRR, and now we've like 1000 x that, basically, or something like that. And uh, he was bootstrapped. I started them super, super early on. Calendly is ginormous. You know, one of the really big billion-dollar unicorn startup success stories out of Atlanta. But there were a lot of people who were, one, just not super happy with Calendly. But Calendly also has a huge brand name that we can kind of siphon off of. So we positioned SavvyCal directly as a Calendly alternative. And all the value propositions, all the way down to like the positioning, the messaging, the copywriting of what was on the site and how we were positioning the value proposition of why you should choose SavvyCal over any other tool was really just, we're trying to steal customers from Calendly. And we're directly going up against them, running you know little Twitter ads. We've got our Calendly alternative page. We're going up against reviews. We're doing direct outreach. We're hopping into Twitter threads about you know people angry about sending out scheduling links and things like that who don't really like Calendly. And we're just showing up in all the right places for people who don't like Calendly. 
one of the other things that we did really early on was we had a lot of people who were like, oh, this is cool. This is interesting. But I just renewed my annual subscription with my whole team with Calendly. And, you know, we're only like a couple months into it. So like, you know, maybe we'll kind of re up the conversation in, in nine months when, once our contract is up. But like for now, our hands are kind of tied. And we kept hearing that over and over and over again. And we're like, man, this kind of sucks. Like a lot of their subscriptions are annual versus monthly, which makes for higher switching costs. And how do we reverse that? So after like a month or so, it just kind of randomly came to this that a lot of the like old telecom phone subscription companies have been doing this for ages where they'll basically buy out your contract, right? T-Mobile was like the uncarrier and they were like, no contracts. Plus we'll buy out your existing contract with AT&T or Verizon or, or your landline, whatever it was to switch over because they knew that they could pay that upfront is basically like a factored into the customer acquisition cost. And then the lifetime value of the customer over time would far outweigh the cost of paying the, you know, $300 left in someone's contract just to switch over right now. So we actually kind of took it one step further. and We said, we'll buy out your existing subscription with Calendly if you're on an annual subscription, uh, according to the amount that you have left on your subscription. But we don't actually have to pay for it because they've already paid in advance. You're not locked into like a 12-month contract where you're paying monthly. They already paid in advance. So instead of what we did was we we just credited the new Savvy Call customer who's switching over the exact amount that there was left on their value of their Calendly subscription. And they said, look, we're not going to like buy you out technically, but we're going to give you the credits so that you're not losing any money by switching over to SavvyCal and there's no switching costs. We kind of just eliminated that. And man, it worked really, really well. All those people who were like, oh, you know, I'll get around to it in a couple months. Now they had no excuse. And we reached back out to those people, ran a whole campaign around it. We made a big deal about it on Twitter. That was just, you know, one of those other examples of kind of just being scrappy and really didn't, it, it was a free marketing tactic because again, we didn't pay anything out of pocket to quote unquote buy out the subscription, but we still were able to get people to switch over from Calendly, even though we're there at the little guys, right? And it was kind of just took a little bit of ingenuity and thinking about how can we steal an idea from an existing paradigm in another industry like the telecom companies. What are some things that you think about challenges wise with having a low budget? So I know obviously you can spend as much as you could better, but what are some other challenges that you faced and then how did you overcome those? Yeah, I mean, one of the big ones, if you don't have a big budget, is that you're probably going to be a lot, doing a lot of things yourself. So you don't have a big team, you don't have a lot of, you know, a couple of agencies, you don't have a lot of contractors working with you. And so if anything, it becomes a factor of how can I best make the use of my time in particular? If I'm a marketing team of one, just what do I work on that I think is going to be the most promising and the most efficient for me to get the results that I need? Because I don't have, you know, 100 hours a week. I have 40 or 50. I don't have a year to go figure this out. I have like three to six months before I need to start working on the next idea, the next experiment, the next big kind of campaign. And in that sense, one of the things that works really well, I think, is just working on things that scale well. So I'm a big fan of SEO and content. I always tell people SEO is the only channel that is both free and recurring traffic. Like you're not going to find that anywhere else. If you're posting on social media, sure, it's free, but it's going to be a flash in the pan. You got to post over and over and over again. Even then your results are going to vary a lot. 
And then you have recurring sources of traffic like referrals or if you have an ad budget and you can just kind of money in, money out or money in traffic out, that can get you some sort of you know reoccurring traffic. But SEO is kind of magical because you think about it, you do the work once to create the content, to target a keyword that gets you free traffic every month. As long as people are still searching that same keyword, your page is going to show up and they're going to find what they're looking for. So solving a problem for them. And then you now you're you're compounding, right? Now you've kind of like duplicated yourself in a way because you don't have to go and take that traffic every single time. I can write one blog post a week, but now those four blog posts I wrote last month are still working for me this month. And now the next month I'm going to have eight blog posts and then 12 blog posts. And then everything that you do is still going to be working for you afterwards. So SEO is always one of the first places I start on a shoestring budget because anyone can write content. Anyone can think, you know, how do I get my thoughts into words onto a document? And then just with a really small amount of keyword research and technical SEO and make sure you're doing the right things to start getting free recurring traffic. And even if you're really, really smart, one of the things I've been really harping on for a lot of uh, more product centric founders and, and marketers, if they're kind of like a marketer by default, <laughs> there's no one else to do the marketing of the company, is to do programmatic SEO and programmatic content. Basically, templatizing and productizing the content you're creating by assembling it. So that's basically taking like the Zillow strategy or the Airbnb strategy of SEO, where you take kind of like a curated database of content and then you assemble it using kind of modifiers. You might have like a a head modifier like townhome or two-bedroom house or something like that. And then it'd be like in San Diego as a second modifier. And then maybe a third modifier might be like with a pool right? And now all you're doing is just kind of matching to your database to create a page that assembles content based on what is most relevant to that search result, right? And we see this all the time. Like, it's actually a lot easier than people think, because what you can do a lot of times is you can take your existing product, and you can templatize it or expose the product publicly in certain ways that makes it really easy to just generate that content that you already have. A lot of people don't realize that they're sitting on a gold mine of content, but it's just sitting in their product and it's in a database rather than on the marketing site or in some way where people can interact with it in a public way. I can give you a couple examples, but for example, like I'm working with Peter Soom over at Reform, which is a, a Typefully or a Typeform competitor. Again, thinking about how do you go up against big incumbents with a shoestring budget? Well, he's basically just templatizing a lot of the forms And then he's creating a page from each one of those forms that targets a keyword that's now garnering thousands and thousands of visitors to the site for exactly what people are looking for, which is a form template, right? So it's close to the product. So it's a high conversion rate. It's scalable because all he's doing is he's exposing things from the product and it's free recurring traffic, which is magic, right? And so you can do this for a lot of different types of companies, a lot of different types of products. I'll give you a couple of examples really, really quick, but there's reform with form templates, we did this with Swipewell, one my startup. So we're building different like collections of swipe files. So we're targeting things like Facebook ad examples, vintage ad examples, best welcome email examples. And we're using our own app to curate that list of examples and screenshots. And then we're just creating pages, but from our own database that populates the content for each one of those pages. Nomad list has cities. Lazy Surfer, one of my other friends here in San Diego, he has all these pages based on different beaches and surf reports. Canva has, you know, just absolutely killed this strategy. Zapier's also killed the strategy with all the different integrations. If it's, you know, Riverside and HubSpot integration, 
right? Zapier is probably going to be in there somewhere, right? Because they've created that page to target people looking for the integration. So opportunities are endless for programmatic content. And again, it really helps because it's scalable, especially for people who are like the de facto marketer, if they're a product person or developer, that's kind of right in their wheelhouse. And that really helps when you're, when you have a free or $0 budget. I think two things that are people miss that you're saying is the power of like curation right there. I mean, all it is is taking existing stuff that you're making and curating it into different subcategories. I think mm -hmm. that's people miss this even in big companies. It's kind of crazy. They create so many and the content team needs to create a new piece of content instead of taking an existing piece of content and chopping it up into 10 pieces of content from that existing piece of content. It's just crazy that you have to have a new. And then the other one is just finding out what what are your audience talking about? Because for your example, even with like swipe well, landing page examples, like those are all things that people are searching for that marketers are talking about that you just could take existing content and create a category of that. And then people will search for it. So it's so funny how People think one side is a creation side of things, but so many people leave out that curation side of things. Totally, totally. Yeah, I find that also engineering as marketing is a really good place to start and is somewhat related to the programmatic content too, because what you can do is you can just expose kind of features inside of your product and then package that up as its own free tool in and of itself on the marketing site. So I've seen tools like Banner Bear do this really, really well. Also bootstrapped, or kind of shoestring budget, a developer founder, and uh, so he's taking things like Twitter image card generator, and that's a feature inside of his paid tool, which is really really extensive, and he's got API access and all these really cool kind of templates. But then he's just taking one really small part of that, and then packaging it up for something really specific, like a Twitter image card generator, making that free, and be like, hey, if you want to do more with this, or if you want something else like this that does X, Y, and Z, sign up for my paid product. And again, now you're attracting the right type of people. And there's people searching for Twitter card image generator every single month in Google. So it's free recurring traffic. But all he's doing is, again, it's taking existing code and he's sort of curating it and patching it up into another use, turning his product into a marketing tool, which is awesome. I love that idea, especially, you know, we're doing this again with SavvyCal, where Derek had to do a whole bunch of work basically playing the curator for patching up like all the different time zones around the world and what cities and locations are in each time zone where all the different nuances between daylight savings and certain time zones have a bunch of different names. So he's basically like creating these canonical versions of time zones. And then we said, what can we do with all this data now that we've done all the work just to make our scheduling tool work, which is the main product? How else can we use this data so that we've created? Well, now we're creating a time zone converter. And so if you go to time.savvycal.com, you'll see that it's basically a, a mini tool, again, that basically was like a feature or data that we were pulling from to make the scheduling tool work. And we've repurposed it into something else that solves a completely different job to be done altogether. But there are tons of people searching for 8 a.m. PST to London time. Or what time is it in Tel Aviv, Israel? in PST, right? And so now we get to sort of programmatically generate that content based off of a mini tool that we created that was an abstraction from the main product itself. 
so we're killing a bunch of birds with one stone, a horrible analogy, but like you get the idea where we're, uh, it's not that much more work compared to all the other work we've already done in the past. And also you're giving, letting everybody know why marketing should work close with product and why yeah. product should work close with marketing, because it's a perfect example where marketing doesn't have to go create, spin up a new tool by themselves. They just take existing stuff that's already built in house and can create mm-hmm. a marketing asset. And then marketers, a demand gen person or a growth person will know this is how I, it can generate leads and a product person will be, this is how I, we could build it. And if they work together, it creates a, a product that is helping generate tons of leads a month. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I love that because for me as a marketer, someone who's not technical, I sort of, I don't know what there is to work with, right? I just don't know what I don't know. And developers on on the other side, they do all this work that they don't know sort of what they're sitting on. They also don't know what they don't know because they don't know what this data or what this little tool or what this function they created could be used for. So you have to have that kind of dialogue and that conversation all the time of like, that really like the, the SavvyCal time zone converter was born out of Derek and I hopping on a call and him telling me like all of his woes about dealing with time zones and how he had to basically create his own proprietary database of time zones and kind of an internal programmatic time zone converter. And I was like, oh, shoot, I've actually seen like a lot of search queries for that, a lot of search traffic for things like that. Could we turn this into like a free tool? He's like, oh, I had no idea that that was even a thing or like that there was search traffic around that. I'm like, yeah, man, that's why we got to talk about this stuff because again, you could be sitting on a gold mine. You just don't know it unless you're always in that conversation of, our developer, what are you working on? The developer always asking like, hey, can this be used for anything? Yeah, it's just the typical, you need dots to be able to connect them. And if you don't yeah. have that dot, that's the what new ideas are basically. It's just obsolete dots that mm-hmm. are found out to be connected. And it also comes from diverse opinions in a company where you have product marketing or even simple as SEO talking to, demand gen and mm-hmm. coming up with an idea, oh, this is a high search query. How can we build a form that could create more leads together and let's work together to do that? It's just this cross collaboration, especially when you're in a smaller marketing team is so crucial. That's why I love mm-hmm. working at smaller marketing teams because you could just spin up so many ideas because you're talking to everybody on the team all the time where larger yeah. marketing teams, SEO barely talks to demand gen or SEO barely talks to product. Yeah, the reality is that everything is very like cross-functional these days. You know, like if you're, especially if you're in like a growth function, again, going back to my work with, with Savvy Cow, it's been really nice because now that I'm building my own startup with SwipeWell, I get to kind of take this like founder hat and this founder mindset of everything being very interconnected because I'm not just paying attention to like what are the conversion rates from visitor to sign up and I'm not only just looking at sign up to paid but I'm also looking at like what's the retention rate of those customers how much are we paying to acquire those types of customers are they the right types of customers for us where are they coming from why are they here are they being misled somehow should we you know change the messaging and positioning on the website to better qualify and kind of filter out for the bad customers so the more that all the departments are talking to each other and the more context you have throughout the whole funnel of the business from visitor to raving fan, the better job you're going to be able to do as a marketer and the more ideas you're going to have to do a lot of fun, creative marketing. 
Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head with that one. I, I don't need to say anything to that. One question I had also is, what is a marketing hill you would die on? Oh, marketing hill down. Man, well, I mentioned a little bit before, but like there's all this talk, especially in like the VC world of like LTV to CAC. And if you just crack the code of getting three to one or four to one or LTV to CAC, then your acquisition model is infinitely scalable. And after one, after working at Bear Metrics and seeing the insides of like literally thousands of SaaS companies and getting this question over and over and over again, that being one of the main things that people are trying to figure out. And then two, trying to actually put the model into practice with acquisition models through SavvyCal, through SwipeWell, through Bearmetrics, through a bunch of other startups I've invested in or, or advised or consulted with. I'm kind of just calling BS. And I want to die on this hill that LTV to CAC is a completely useless metric for SaaS marketing in particular. And it's fine if people disagree, if there's a lot of nuances to it. What I mean by LTV in particular is that basically what happens is that LTV is kind of a, a relic from another world of e-commerce. And so LTV is supposed to be the cumulative earnings or cumulative revenue per customer. But what happens when you get something like SaaS, where it's a subscription, and that number grows every single month. And then you have to account for things like expansion revenue, contraction revenue. But like in theory, someone could be a customer of a SaaS company forever. Like there's no reason why that number wouldn't grow and keep growing at the same rate for a long time. And so what happens is that LTV, they had to change the formula altogether. And they went from like cumulative revenue to like a function of churn. So they said like, okay, what's your average revenue per user divided by your user churn rate? And that should give us like the average or kind of expected lifetime of a customer with you. Sorry, I'm like getting really in the weeds here, but it's important. And that was basically supposed to be like an estimate of how long a customer would be with you on average. But this gets to why averages are really dangerous is because what happens is that you end up with two really disparate ends of the spectrum where you have customers who are only with you for a couple of months. Because actually, if you look at the data, a lot of the churn for SaaS companies happens within the first three months, and then it kind of levels out. And at the far end of the spectrum, you get customers who have been with you for three, four, five, six, ten 10 years. And so their cumulative earnings or their lifespan is going to be far beyond the average. And then you get customers who are going to be far below the average. And what the average actually is, is not representative of the revenue that you're collecting per customer. So if you base your whole acquisition model off of this idea of lifetime value, you're going to find that actually your customer acquisition costs and your acquisition model is not as profitable as you might think. So what's the alternative? I really love what LTV to CAC is really actually getting at is this idea of a payback period of how long does it take for a customer to become profitable after you've spent the money to acquire that customer on a per customer basis, obviously. But you want your payback period to be somewhere between three to 12 months, usually on average. If you're below three months, like you have struck a gold mine, <laughs> you should spend an infinite amount of money because you're really, really lucky. For the most part, what you'll find is that companies are in like that like six to 12 month range of payback period. And that means that you need to have about six to 12 months of cash reserved for your marketing budget before it starts to be replenished, right? So anyways, you see how this all kind of starts to play together. And I've just been through it so many times now where I'm like, it's not as simple as LTV to CAC. And it's really such a misleading metric because what you need to know is how long does it take for a customer to become profitable on average? And then how much cash do I need to acquire the number of customers 
I need to hit my goals. That's what we're actually getting at. And LTV CAC does not help you figure that out at all. And I love that because one, not all everybody in your ICP is treated equally. Yeah. So there's a variation of, because you're also going to start selling into net new ICP, let's just say. And then also not every acquisition channel that someone comes in, they know who you are. So for example, like referrals, obviously the LTV is probably going to be higher than a Facebook ad conversion, but you'd be doing blended. And then at the beginning of your company, referrals was most of your your customer base and then you're scaling fast and Facebook starts becoming a lot of your acquisition. You got this off-put data of referrals being your LTV where they're the best, they're obviously the best customers that you have. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of people don't do also like LTV by channel, LTV by ICP. And if you're going to do LTV, like you better start dissecting it into different parts and also even CAC payback CAC payback needs to be this blended obviously CAC payback but also like what is CAC payback of each channel what's and then what's blended CAC payback it's just getting into I know I'm getting into the weeds too but I I totally agree with that LTV thing because I've been in companies where they're like okay LTV is 56 months or something like that like 50 60 percent of our customers have come in in the last 12 months how could you assume yeah right Right. <laughs> so how could you assume that it's 56 months just based on the 50% that came in in the first three years of your company? It's always the danger of averages and basing things off of a huge data set that has a ginormous range, right? Going back to like our stats 101 class, if the range is so big and like if the standard deviations from the mean are too large, then you can't base any of your metrics off of an average because it just won't be representative. So what was happening, you know, is it was like, Oh yeah, on paper, LTV to CAC makes sense. But then you just know that something's not right. You're like, we're not growing as fast as I think that we should. We're not acquiring customers. And like, we're spending a lot of money compared to how many customers we're acquiring. What's going on here? And that's because you're not accounting for churn. You're not accounting for how long customers actually think stick around for because they might stick around for a very little time. They might stick around for a very long time. And you just don't know that until it actually kind of plays out until way later, right? A year down the road, two years down the road. And so you need something else to go off of, which is why I think payback period is a much better model. And so I'll die on that hill. <laughs> Please stop using LTV to CAC. If you're a SaaS company or a subscription-based company, it's totally fine if you're e-com or any other kind of one-time purchase, but please stop using LTV to CAC and please use payback period instead. I'm in agreement with you because I've seen it myself where we start spending too much money. and. CAC payback is the best metric to say, okay, we paid this money and now we've paid back this money with the actual revenue where like LTV is arbitrary revenue. It's Mm -hmm. not so you don't know that it's going to happen. Exactly. Another question I have for you is if someone came up to you right now and you would give them a piece of advice, what is something you would tell them that they would come back to you a few years later and thank you for? Hmm. My piece of advice would be to think from first principles and to not try to eliminate as many assumptions out of your marketing strategy, or just, I mean, just in life in general, but since we're talking about marketing and marketing strategy, eliminate as many assumptions as you can and always really dig into the truth. Try to be objective about what are we actually trying to accomplish here? What do I care about? What is really important at the end of the day? 
it's really easy to get sucked into uh, vanity metrics and feeling like, well, everything's going fine on paper. And as long as, you know, the, the boss is happy with me, then things are going fine. It takes a lot of intellectual honesty and kind of humility to always be searching after the truth and be thinking from first principles. But that's where a lot of the innovation happens. That's where a lot of the creativity happens. That's where you learn to become a more kind of independent thinker. And also, I think for people leveling up in their career, a more strategic thinker. That's really one of the big differences between like a individual contributor and more of like a manager, director type persona is can they think for themselves and come up with a strategy that makes sense where you're not just copying competitors, you're not just sort of doing what you think is right, but are you really thinking from first principles so that someone trusts you to make those decisions? Now you've made yourself into managerial director, VP, CMO type material. It's really hard to do. It takes a lot of practice, but that's the one thing I've been harping on for a long time. One thing I wish I would have focused on earlier myself and what I most often tell people. Yeah, it's funny because assumptions, usually it's good to have assumptions, but it has to be in guardrailed assumptions where you have a, a mechanism of testing assumptions. And then also, I think the other point too is the simplicity a lot of people overcomplicate marketing and just where I've been is just they think they need to do so many special things just because competitors are doing so. And if they just stick to the simple things of just understanding who their customer are, understanding where they hang out and then understanding how to deliver things. Yeah, it's not rocket focus. We yeah. overcomplicate it so much. Yeah. One final question I have for you is who are some people – inspiring you in the space who are some people you look up to oh man i mean always kind of just my group of people that i try to keep a uh, close tabs on is um louis grenier dave gerhardt harry dry caitlin burgoyne marketing max all the people who are, are i feel like are sort of like in my peer group slash like one step ahead of me who i feel like even if we're not technically like together working on stuff where like just by being in that same space kind of in the proximity then they're pushing me to be better to learn more to upgrade my skills to think a little bit differently so those are my my marketing og friends on twitter and uh, the people i always go back to it's always good i think people underestimate peer mentors so much i think people always look up to say i have to look up to people 10 years in their career or 15 but some of my greatest people i bounce off ideas are at the same level or one or two years yeah in ahead of me in marketing it's hard because they understand what i'm going through they understand what advice to give me someone who's 10 years out sometimes doesn't understand the landscape that you're in right there or the position you're in at that moment so it's hard for them to give you tactical practical advice to do something yeah absolutely i think that just like learning from your peers sharing notes asking questions putting off the imposter syndrome of like you know worrying that someone's gonna be like what you don't know how to do that or like and just putting it all away and be like hey can i learn from you feel free to learn from me <laughs> whatever i have to offer but just always trying to be pursuant of learning from other people and keeps you humble but also i think it's the fastest way to actually grow as a person Last thing is, where can people find you? I know you are doing 
200 things at once. And I probably need <laughs> to ask you how you manage your time because I see a new project every month launched by you. But um, where can people find you? What are you doing? How can they keep in touch with you? Twitter is definitely the best place. Feel free to DM me, follow me, interact with anything there. It's just at Corey Haynes Co. My personal site has a link to everything that I'm working on as well as a lot more info about me. It's CoreyHaynes.co. And then, of course, I'm on LinkedIn. You can go to SwipeFiles.com, SwipeWell.app, SavvyCal.com if you want to look at like the things I'm actually working on and sort of the work that I do. But Twitter, if you really want to like, I would say follow me there. It's the best place to have fun and be friends. I would 100% agree. He is one of the best person to follow for marketing advice. And also, if you're in SaaS, I think he is someone who's disrupting the space of talking about SaaS. Um, so I recommend you follow him. Thank you for joining this. It's been awesome. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.